This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me tonight in the virtual studio are Flick Ford. Hi, Paul. And Sally Christie. Hi, Paul. So <clears throat> on tonight's show, we're going to start with a bittersweet announcement. Um, <laughs> this is going to be the last show in quite some time for one of our Primal Screen originals, and it's been a while since we've had the three originals on the show. It has been, yeah. It's been a couple of months. Um, mm. But, yes, we this is going to be the last show in quite a while for Sally Christie as <clears throat> she is departing to start her own brood. That's right. <laughs> Our resident horror queen is having a new daughter or a good son or a non-gender conforming godsend. Perhaps her PhD on the representation of Satan in cinema is an omen that this dear expected child may be the first of her devil times five. <laughs> Your titles in there. Um, congratulations, Sal. Everyone here at Primal Screen wishes you and Josh all of our love and very best wishes for the happy and healthy birth of your new arrival next month. And while we'll miss you dearly on air, you have promised to join us in the future for the odd guest spot. So this is not a goodbye, but uh, we'll see you down the road, to quote Nomadland's Bob Wells. Definitely. Thank you so much, Paul. That's really sweet. And lots of people, I think, are expecting that I call the baby Damien, but we don't know. It's been mentioned one or two times. But definitely this is this is um my last show for a little while, but not forever. I will definitely be back. Oh, I'm glad. I um I love that this baby hasn't even been born and it's already cooler than me. <laughs> Young Damien Lucifer Beals above Christie. Yeah. Yep. Um uh Aveling. Uh so to send Sally off in style. We've decided to throw her a little movie party, one where she got to pick all the films we'll be reviewing this week, and she's gone with three faves, all nestled close to her dark heart. First, we'll be hearing something we shouldn't as John Travolta and Nancy Allen get caught up in a conspiracy in Brian De Palma's 1981 thriller Blowout. Then we'll trek through the English moors. No, wait, I mean stick to the roads. As young Americans David Norton and Griffin Dunn have the worst OS experience of all in John Landis's 1981 horror comedy, An American Wolf in London. And finally, we'll find a crawl space upstairs to watch Ewan McGregor, Kerry Fox and Christopher Eccleston go mad with greed and paranoia in Danny Boyle's 1994 dark comedy thriller, Shallow Grave. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But first, it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. 
feels like ages since I've done a new segment on this show, so I thought <laughs> I'd take a minute to pay tribute to some acting giants and one directorial giant who have left us over the last couple of weeks for that great silver screen in the sky. Firstly, the great character actor Yafet Koto, and a commanding bear of a man who exploded onto the screen in such films as Larry Cohen's confrontational social black comedy Bone before playing a Bond villain in Live and Let Die and on TV a real-life villain in General Eddie Armin in Raid on Entebbe, as well as films like Across the 110th Street, Paul Schrader's Blue Collar, The Running Man, and most famously as Chief Engineer Parker in Ridley Scott's Alien and as FBI agent Alonzo Mosley in Martin Brest's Midnight Run, and on TV again as station boss Lieutenant L. Giardello in the long-running drama Homicide Life on the Street. Cotto passed away two weeks ago at the age of 81. Last week, we also bid farewell to George Siegel, a hugely lovable actor who was a, a massive comic-leading man in the 1960s and 70s in great films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Owl and the Pussycat, California Split, The Hot Rock, A Touch of Class, and many more who achieved a new level of fame in the 1990s as Jack Gallo in the hit sitcom Just Shoot Me. And then just a day after Seagal, um, we also said farewell to another actor who achieved sitcom fame later in life, and that is the beloved character actress Jessica Walter, who scared mm. the crap out of Clint Eastwood in his directorial debut play Misty for Me, was Golden Globe nominated for her earlier role in John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix, but she worked more extensively in television, where, of course, she created her most iconic role, tossing off brilliant one-liners as the hilariously awful and ambivalent matriarch Lucille Bluth over five seasons of the cult hit sitcom Arrested Development. And she was 80. You're, uh, you look like you're eager to jump in there, Flick. Oh, no, I was just like, I think I've just had like Arrested Development quotes in my head all week. So um... <laughs> yeah, somebody was... Doing that star sign meme where Lucille had a had a star sign <laughs> um, response to every. <laughs> she's <laughs> wonderful. Um, she's just so wonderful on screen. I just love funny women on screen, and she's got to be one of the best. I was reading this great article um, that came out, I think, the day after she died, about um, how she is had, um, went on to become one of the internet's most popular memes, not just, you know, in many, many, many forms there are Lucille Bluth memes um, and that she's living on through meme culture as well. So <laughs> there's this kind of win there that she's getting. But, yeah, she is, well, she was incredible. A new form of immortality. Yep. <laughs> um, and then the day after Walter, we bid a fond adieu to French writer-director Bertrand Tavernier, who started his six-decade career as an assistant director to to filmmakers as distaff as Volker Schlondorf and Umberto Lenzi, and as a publicist on films by Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Melville before making his own directorial debut in 1974 with The Clockmaker, winning the Berlinale Silver Bear in the process, before winning further acclaim with such films as, but not limited to, A Sunday in the Country, Round Midnight, Life and Nothing But, Daddy Nostalgie, The Bait, In the Electric Mist, the Princess of Montpensier and the French Minister, before this lifelong cineast closed his career in 2016 with the epic documentary My Journey Through French Cinema. And Tavernier was 79, just a month shy of his 80th birthday. Well, we started with a birth, moved on to deaths. Perhaps by the end of the show we'll announce a marriage. Is anyone here a legal <laughs> celebrant? No? Okay. Let's jump into our first film of the evening. Yes. What the hell is the matter with you? What? tape you gave me didn't have nothing on it. All my tapes are blank. 
You know, I don't get you, man. First you feed me all this nutty assassination shit, then you give me a blank tape. What for? Because somebody erased it. They've erased all my tapes. Oh, oh, yeah. They, they erased your tapes. What are they going to be doing? Trying to kill you next? Blowout from 1981 was the 14th feature film directed by Brian De Palma. Jack Terry, played by John Travolta, is a master audio technician who makes his living by uh, acting as a sound recordist for schlocky exploitation movies. Late one evening, he's out recording the wind for a horror movie when he hears something unexpected, a bang, or is it two, and then a car careening into a creek. He jumps in to rescue Sally, played by Nancy Ellen, one of the car's passengers, saving her life. Unfortunately for everyone involved, the other passenger was a governor seemingly destined for the White House. As Jack is told to forget Sally and the incident and the dead governor, he begins a desperate search for the truth, using his recording of the incident to unravel the pieces of a nefarious conspiracy, a quest that might cost them their lives. So, Sally, you were given carte blanche this week to just come (laughs) in and uh, some would say a blank tape. To come in and uh, lay down whatever uh, whatever films you wanted to. What made Blowout? Primary? Well, I, I picked these three films not for any other reason really that I just love them. But then I was thinking, I was like, oh, they're all films about troubled young men. Um, <laughs> so, like, all of them are. I picked this, I picked Blowout because I love De Palma. He is one of my all-time favourite directors ever. I think stylistically I just absolutely adore him. His films, for me, I think are so beautiful and they capture the essence of what I love about 70s and 80s filmmaking where there is this kind of um, risk to it. Uh, It's not conforming to any particular kind of rules. And I think for me Blowout is just, it captures everything that is De Palma really, really beautifully. Um, I also am a huge John Travolta fan. Many people know this, some people (laughs) don't, but I love John Travolta. And I think that often as audiences, we forget that he's an incredibly gifted actor. Um, he gets lumped in with, you know, being Danny Zuko or, uh, perhaps Battlefield Earth, his performance <laughs> there. And um, he's he's a, a really phenomenal actor and I, this for me is one of my favourite performances of his where for the first time we get to see him play um, a grown-up in a film. I think he was probably about 27 when he um, took this role on and um, he also is an intelligent grown-up in this film. He's not kind of playing a doofus, which he sort of got typecast to, and he's incredible in it. Um, This film also, it just seems, it seems really limitless. Like what I was saying, De Palma's stylistic choices that he makes is what I find really riveting about cinema. But also, um, I'm not going to give away any spoilers about this movie, but also the plot choices too make this film seem really limitless, that um, there you don't have to conform as a filmmaker to what audience expects either visually or plot-wise, and I think that this is a really masterful example of that. I love this one, yeah. Mm, that's such a lovely way to phrase it as well, mm. as this kind of limitless potential when you don't need to follow convention. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually hadn't seen Blowout before. I'm Did embarrassed you to say. Flick? I loved, I really enjoyed it. I um, I had so much fun watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So did my cat who meowed the entire way through it. And just especially when John Travolta was on screen, he would just meow. <laughs> I can't blame Dave for your cat for doing that. Yeah. Speaking, yeah. speaking of Dave and your and and memes, I loved you did post a thing on Instagram. There was a cut of of Travolta late in the film, but, uh, <laughs> like like racing through all like nudging all these people out of the way to get somewhere. And you're like, this is Dave on his way to the food bowl. I did enjoy that. <laughs> I laughed out loud. He's a greedy pig. But yeah, I um so we yeah, my cat Dave and I sat down and watched this the other night and I had a wonderful time. This is um I think you really captured it, Sally, though. That idea that you can play around with convention and you do not need to follow the certain you don't need to hit a mark in the narrative mm. and you don't need to go kind of um sink into like really predictable um progressions and things like that you can really take the film wherever you want and yeah wow De Palma certainly does that it is a really wild ride um I feel like it really it held my attention because of that like it's yeah it's so over the top um I was reading a bit about how like a lot of it is based on, um, so it's based on Blow Up, the, you know, 66 classic, um, but instead of, of course, being about photography, it's about audio recording. And I love when I'm watching films to try pair it with another film to think like, what would you screen this with? And I was thinking um, actually Peter Strickland's uh, Bavarian Sound Studio would be perfect. because Yeah, that, that comes like, to mind a lot when yeah. watching this, that Peter Strickland, yeah, yeah. must yeah, clearly you have influence from this film for sure. Yeah, and they have, they both have a sense of excess in this like wonderful performativity. There's these slow-mo sequences in Blowout that are just amazing. Um, the characters are really like way louder and it's such an interesting comparison to, you know, something with Strickland's Bavarian Sound Studio, which is a lot more reserved. But both films occupy this really curious um, exploration of, of sound as a side of horror mm. and that kind of listening back and I love that, you know, it's such an interesting premise because we think of screen violence in such visual terms and for the for the kind of the clues of this mystery to be un, un kind of unfolded through just listening back and trying to piece it all together, um, I really enjoyed it. And also it's a film about making a film, which, yeah. you know, as three film nerds, I think really... Um, kind of was quite satisfying. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a great one. I can't believe it's missed me because I also love Travolta, especially early days Travolta, mm. big fan. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting film. And I think that like all of those really um, quintessential De Palma uh, stylistics are at play here and it's wonderful to see like the split screen and um, all of the um, like the tracking shots and things like that. This is just like pure feast, uh, visual and oral feast. Yeah, um, I, I think, yeah. yeah, visually this film is so incredibly beautiful to look at. I think the two, the two movies I kind of nerd out the, at the most watching would be this and A Clockwork Orange, I think. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah, they're yeah. just a, a feast for my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, throw in also there's split diopters, there's yep. read projection, there's um, there's use of use of sound and vision working against each other. Like this is um, this does it's weird. I've always thought, but like my favorite De Palma film is Carrie, and, mm-hmm. and always has been. But this is top draw De Palma, and it feels very much like a like a, a summation of sorts of what he does. The thing I find really interesting about Blowout is that it kind of gets the sort of the new Hollywood 
the sort of the gritty um uh kind of um what um what's the word i'm looking for like downer kind of aspects of of the new hollywood but and then makes it into an opera yeah and it's so it's like more than even like someone like francis coppola you know like like this is just this is like and and it it's two tastes that don't always go well together and he manages to marry them together beautifully like there's like as you say flick this is so over the top and this is so that operatic and yet it has this it's it's quite grounded at the same time like it's it's sort of you know it's this philadelphia street level kind of you know every like he's a you know nobody like other than the the congressman and and you know his people like everyone's kind of you know they're sound recordists for a schlocky exploitation film company they're you know they're a two-bit you know photographer doing scams on the side like like they're all kind of like at the at the bottom level of things Mm -hmm. and I and of course you know as well as being influenced by Blow Up, um, it's also equally influenced by the Chap uh, um, the the Ted Kennedy incident in the '60s with uh-huh. the car going off the road and the girl being killed. Except here it's flipped, um, and it's um, and it sort of really feeds into that kind of um, government conspiracy thing that really kind of came out of the '70s post JFK. Um, sort of, you know, follows on from films like the similarly oral themed "The Conversation" and oh, um, yeah, of course. from 1974, and um, and films like "The Parallax View," the the, the Alan Pakula film, and and um, all the President's Men and so forth. Um, but yeah, but this is kind of the operatic version of that, where you've got yeah, like you said, all the canons of style are thrown at this. Travolta is terrific. I agree. Mm. He's so yeah, he's grown up and he's. Um, he's quite, um, his character is really cranky. He's always cranky yeah. to the people. He's <laughs> just annoyed with everybody, which is not the kind of mode we normally see Travolta in. No, not at all. Also a shout out to the amazing Nancy Allen, who I who should have been a supernova level star in the 80s. I don't know how that didn't happen. Mm. Um, like for me, she's like why she didn't sort of go on to a Meg Ryan style kind of career i guess she's got that darker edge and always took on sort of and um i think she was in a couple with De Palma at this point so she was in a lot of his films around this time as well um but she is so wonderful and charismatic and and um and fun as yeah. is assassin john lithgow uh, <laughs> of course we have to talk about lithgow oh, he's excellent in it like yes. absolutely fantastic i love his sex murderer phone calls like the, she made me do it she she, made, it's like she was looking at me the wrong way <laughs> like putting on this terrible voice and then um and yeah and he has a uh, he has a repeated quirk in this film which is kind of darkly hilarious in terms mm. of the killings um but uh there's yeah there's so much great stuff in this film um and i think it's one of those films that does does benefit from repeat viewings but also as you both mentioned i I just want to kind of underscore this is a real film nerd film like it's a film that's steeped in cinema like from from you know the importance of sound to him literally using the earliest technique of film a flip book to create this mini film the um from a series of photos 
step by uh, frame by frame photos taken of the crash um, in order to sort of put his soundtrack under. He creates this sort of flip book and then films it. Like, and so, so suddenly we're getting like, we're getting flip book, we're getting actual animation cells, we're getting sound recording, like all of this kind of, he's going through all of these phases of cinema. And I am like, I don't know, but it, all the, all the posters in, um, I don't know if it's the Filmways offices or the AIP offices or something. I didn't look it up, but I feel like the 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 place where the film kind of the independent film studio he records for is shot at feels like a real. I think it is place. Yeah, I I, I think it is. I was trying to figure that out while watching it as well. Um, but it it I think it is a real studio because there's posters yep. to actual exploitation films. Yes, yeah, and they're the all real movies. Yeah, yeah, um, which is another wonderful touch as well. Mm. Um, yeah, and also this- I, I love that he's just made the hero of the film the sound guy. Yeah, yeah which is so nice. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> true. And I've got to say, by the end of this film, I was I, I, I know it sort of goes for it. And the first time it was like, eh, and by this time I was actually moved by the yeah, end. Yeah, I, I always find that at the at the end of this film that it's it is pretty moving. Mm. Yeah, I think genuine. It's the, I think it's a like there's a real authenticity to the characters, even though they mm. are overblown, they are anchored to this believability and I think that's the um skill of the dialogue in all honesty and the performances but the dialogue is really excellent like kind of unusual like you were saying before Sal it's kind of again a bit quite unconventional in some ways it's got a kind of I can you can see um Tarantino-esque sort of like style to it and um yeah really really fantastic snappy dialogue yeah there's a case to be made that De Palma was Tarantino before Tarantino. Yes. Yeah. Like, and 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 Tarantino's been quite open about how much of an influence De Palma was on him. Blowout's one of his favourite movies, as, as is Carrie. But, you know, he's kind of the, as well as Scorsese, but particularly De Palma being the OG kind of taken from Hitchcock but taken from all these directors and just making these kind of film geek movies that yeah. are just full of his influences and, and stuff he loves. Um, and also, you know, in pushing violence. Um, in 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 particular as an aesthetic um yeah i this watching this again was an absolute joy thank you sal for um (laughs) throwing it out at us so blowout if you uh would like to get to unravel the mystery um is now available on stan and it is also available to rental buy on youtube itunes and google play you're listening to primal screen on triple r independently yours triple r 102.7. 102.7. Welcome back. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. What? Please believe me. You'll kill people. Nurse! Listen to me! Nurse! The supernatural, the power of darkness, it's all true. An American Wolf in London from 1981 was the fifth feature film directed by John Landis. Two American college students, David Kessler, David Norton, and Jack Goodman, Griffin Dunn, are backpacking through the British countryside when a visit to a strange pub is soon followed by an attack by an unusually large wolf. Jack is killed. David is mauled and local townspeople are unwilling to acknowledge this wolf's existence. 
David begins to have nightmares in hospital of hunting through the forest of becoming an animal, as well as nightmares of his dead friend appearing to him in ever more advanced stages of decomposition, warning him that he may, in fact, be a werewolf. David finds love with the kindly nurse Alex Price, played by Jenny Agatha, but when the full moon arrives, bad things happen, and young love may not even be enough to curb his carnivorous lunar activities. Uh, Flick, um, what's the star on the wall for? <laughs> oh man, what a what a wild film! Honestly, Sal, I'm I've been so um, I've really enjoyed the festival of Sally Christie. It's been <laughs> an absolute joy of of films this week. Um, the SCFF. Yeah, yeah, I'll program another one soon. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is a wonderful little hybrid of uh, comedy horror, which um, I think is a really difficult um, mm. genre um, pairing to get right. Um, it's genuinely funny and genuinely warm and there's also enough, like, icky horror elements to um, to kind of satisfy horror fans as well. I enjoyed this immensely. This film has so much um, mythology around it. Um, it's the first film to win the Academy Award for Best Makeup and it's so well earned. Um, it's done by Rick Baker and it's just exceptional, like the transformation into the werewolf and um, all of the kind of nightmare sequences and his like dead best friend walking around with like a bit of his cheek just dangling <laughs> from his Shredded face. neck. <laughs> oh, it's like the best kind of gore um, comedy um, that's been able to articulate purely through prosthetics and all of this wonderful um, makeup. Um, I was reading up about how they kind of like where it come from and like how they based it and apparently um, Baker based it on his dog Bosco, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> so I'm trying to look at his, looking at his dog and trying to like make, um, yeah, makeup that looks like that. So, uh, look, I, I enjoy this immensely. Um, I really love it when you see friendship on screen and it's believable and it's warm and it's funny. Um, so it starts off so strong and there's lots of like British um, American divide going on which I just love the moment when the two young men two young American travelers walk into that British um pub what was it called the slaughtered lamb is it yep yeah <laughs> such a good scene um this film is filled with so much um despite the dark subject material in some parts it's so light in other areas and I think there's this real usefulness to it especially um with the main character and like his budding romance with this hot nurse and I don't know I loved it I thought it was great um also I'm so glad we get to play some of the music from it because the music is amazing um I think oh, I might have this wrong but I think every song has moon in the title is that right yeah yeah I think so Maybe my friend told me about that look wonderful soundtrack actually all of the films we're watching for the Sally Christie special have wonderful music which is maybe not that surprising Sally has <laughs> music uh taste um yeah it really adds to it and the music is so like upbeat and it's just a great pairing and it's so I feel like this is just such an iconic film mm. um I I'm 
would have watched, um, embarrassingly enough, I actually watched the sequel first when I was a child. So I watched American Werewolf in Paris, which is not that good a film. <laughs> um, but look, this one is definitely um, well worth checking out. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. I think the first time I saw American Werewolf in London, I was young. And I, when I say young, I mean like really long, young, like five or six years old. Oh, and wow. I just <laughs> loved it instantly. Like I instantly fell in love with it. Um, I really I, I could agree with you, Flick, that the the blend of horror and comedy is very difficult and it's something that I don't think is done successfully. I don't love horror comedies. Like I'm not, you know, so into, you know, the evil evil dead armies of darkness and things like that. They just don't oh, really? do it for me. Okay. Don't, yeah. don't love them. But this land We love the first, right? Yes, the yes. first one, great. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. as it progresses, not okay. so much. I'm glad you clarified that. I was like, oh, my God, Sal. I start people, I start getting hate mail. Um, <laughs> but he does he does this combination so beautifully. I think Jordan Peele does a really great job of horror yeah. and comedy as well. Um, but also um, romance too. And that kind of lightness, the way that this is such a blend of so many different genres and it works beautifully, like it it does, it's so smooth. Um, I remember when I found out that when I became aware of, you know, I guess what directors were and things like that when I was a bit older, that this was directed and written by an American, that being John Landis, I was really surprised because the film Hmm. feels really British like obviously, you know, it's an American werewolf in London, but the humour um, feels really, really British know, as well. Yeah, I know what you mean actually. Yeah. I, I think, a, yeah. That kind of, it, and it's interesting because the film is about an outsider in this town, but it doesn't feel like Landis is an outsider making this film. It feels really authentically British. Um, but, yeah, it is. It's completely delightful and that kind of the theme that he's got of, I guess, David being this kind of outsider and he's the the focus, I guess, on him, you know, being Jewish and he this real sort of family focus that I think most people go through when they're, you know, sort of reaching their early 20s and they're wanting to make their own decisions and how is that going to affect your family unit and how is that going to dissolve things is this really interesting undertone to this film um, that kind of keeps coming up over and over again. And if I, you know, move shift away from my family, how am I, how will that be disappointing or not disappointing mm-hmm. with him constantly, you know, trying to get back in touch with his family? And it it is a pretty sombre movie as well, but, um and that works successfully too. So I think this is just a real achievement on so many levels, um, the way that he's just managed to make it work when it it realistically shouldn't. And it's still um, just so I've seen this movie so many times and it's an absolute joy every time and especially seeing baby Rick Mayle in the Slaughter yes. Lamb at the start. <laughs> Remember the olive ball. Yep, he's his one he's line. Like, he was like born to play that role though, wasn't he? he? Was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um also of course, you know, it's you can't really talk about this film without looking at that iconic transformation scene. Yeah. And I think they took about a week or something to film it. And then I was reading that Landis said that he really wanted to capture how painful it would be. 
Yeah. Um, because that. before that we kind of had when we were looking at transformations scenes in films like a series of dissolvers were used. Um, but, yeah, and it does, it looks incredibly bloody painful. Yeah. And even, you know, that with the soundtrack in the background is just done masterfully. And it, it, it holds up, doesn't it? That's the thing that really it doesn't does. age. Yep. Yeah. It doesn't like, age. Like, no, yep. the humour, the humour actually is pretty timeless. There's yeah. no, like, specific references. You know, some comedies, they kind of get stuck in a particular time period and the references mm-hmm. are, like, so fixed. This is, like, the comedy is timeless. But in all honesty, even though, of course, the technology's moved on, it's a really great transformation scene. It's like, fantastic, yep. yeah. Quite well, horrific as well. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I, was, what I was specifically saying doesn't age. That transformation does mm. not age. Like, no, it doesn't. Like, I don't, like, I can't. You can give me any CGI werewolf transformation that's ever done since and it's inferior to this. Like mm. I can't think of anything that's ever topped it. It's perfect. Yeah. Speaking of perfect, there's about 40 movies that I feel like are perfect movies, don't change a frame. This is one of them. This is yeah, this I is agree. one of my oh, this is one of my top 10 films of all time. Mm. I saw it probably when I was a preteen. And immediately just as I was sort of discovering horror and just fell in love with it. But as I get older, it just, it's more and more richly rewarding. As you say, there's all of this, there's all of this subtext. There's all this subtext about being a young person abroad for the first time in your life and the ways that that can all go wrong. And then that thing of separating from the family, separating, but also being away from home and just being away Mm -hmm. from the safe and the familiar and out in this unfamiliar place. Mm. Um, Landis spent quite a bit of time in Europe. Um, during his 20s, he worked as a stuntman and often went on shoots, like he shot Kelly's Heroes in Yugoslavia or something and and all of this sort of stuff. So he spent quite a bit of time in Europe and 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 probably soaked up a bit of England during that period. Um, he wrote this. This was one of the earliest things he wrote. He, he wrote it while he was in Europe as before he ever became a director. Um, and so he sort of then went on to write and direct Schlock and then was sort of waiting, basically waiting until he could get the money and the technology to the point where he could make this properly. Um, it also has, says so much about, yeah, the, the uneasy relationship between America and England mm. and, and those cultural differences, but also the history between those two countries and sort of, you know, gent- like gentle mistrust, shall we say. Um, but there's, um, and there's so much, yeah, like you said, Flick, is there's so much of English culture throughout here. Like you've got that, you know, you've got the English, the, the I mean, see you next Wednesday, uh, the, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, the porn film that's yeah. showing at the, <laughs> the porno theater where something happens. Apparently they it's shot brilliant. that first. I love that. <laughs> I, I laughed so much during the, the film within the film, but it's so, it's so <laughs> I, I remember. <laughs> I remember watching God American Werewolf in London, in London on television when I was really young, when I was quite young, and they'd still, you know, put, just put the black lines over boobs and stuff yes. like that. So I think that was my first viewing of it. Is just seeing that porn sequence just with black stripes over them. <laughs> Why don't I have the black stripe? Um, it's the. Uh, um, but also, like, there's stuff on the TV, like News of the World, somebody, like, some tabloid headline and all this sort of stuff. Um, the film is dedicated to Charles and Diana because they just got married. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, like, there's so much Although, of that. Will, Will point, I watched it with Will Cox, who was on our show the other week, 
He pointed out that there's that whole conspiracy theory about the royal family being werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> so might be a nod to that. I don't Every, know. Everything's connected. Get John Travolta <laughs> onto it. <laughs> But yeah, I just feel like this film judges the um the everything really p- pitch perfectly. Like you said, Flick, the friendship in this film is so real and so off the cuff. They have conversations like real dudes would have, totally, and right like real friends would have. But also the relationship it, it unfolds in a really beautiful organic way. Like David and and Alex feel like an organic couple. Like they feel like a new you know this sort of rush of two twenty somethings in love. It's it's really, yeah, and I think part of it, and it's the whole, like, Landis' whole thesis of this film is, like, getting something as crazy as a universal horror movie and then grounding it as if it's something that happens in the real world mm. and then smushing those two things together, which is my almost my favourite type of cinema. Um, it's, we were just talking about, you know, Tarantino, it's what he does, it's what, you know, so many other filmmakers do this kind of thing. And, I, yeah, no, I can't say enough wonderful things about this film. I've... I, it's in my DNA um, to the point I didn't even have to watch it for this week's show because I've seen it so many times. Um, yeah, like I said, it's one of my top all-time top ten. And, um, yeah, you should, if you have not seen An American Wealth in London, then, damn it, what have you waited? For, what are you waiting for? Um, it's available to stream on Stan or rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We are a bit of fond farewell to our co-host, Sally Christie, who has programmed the entire evening with films she loves, just like this one. Yes, so tell me, Cameron, just tell me, because I'd like to know, what on earth could make you think we'd want to share a flat like this with someone like you? I mean, my first impressions, and they're rarely wrong, is that you have none of the qualities we normally seek from a prospective flatmate. Talking here about things like presence, charisma, style and charm, and I don't think we're asking too much. I don't think we're being unreasonable. Shallow Grave was the debut feature film directed by Danny Boyle. Three Edinburgh friends, Alex, Ewan McGregor, Juliet, Kerry Fox, and David, Christopher Eccleston, interview and select a new housemate, uh, a bunch of new housemates, but mostly psychologically torture them finally they settle upon a mysterious writer named hugo played by keith allen aka lillian elfie's dad but he's hardly moved in when they discover him dead in his room an ethical dilemma ensues when they discover that he not only possessed some drugs but also a large amount of cash things get worse as the men whose money it was search for it and the three friends start to turn on each other um Sally, did this give you flashbacks to previous uh, housemate arrangements or uh, just oh, being a kid in the early 90s, mid-90s? Housemates are hard, aren't they? They're really <laughs> difficult to find a good housemate and this film really illustrates that. But, um, I just go to the roof, start drilling holes in the house. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I was, um, this film was made for, I think, like a million pounds and... Danny Boyle has said to make a successful low-budget film that you need to have a good script and you need to keep it to 90 minutes, which is exactly what this film is. I think the strength of Shallow Grave is John Hodges' script. Um, It's incredible. It's so tight. The pacing of this film is one thing that I I just I love. Um, 
there's no wasted, for, I feel when I'm watching this, there's no wasted airtime when we're, we're watching Shallow Grave. Everything is just really punchy and it needs to be there. And um, the fact that this is Hodge's first script is really really remarkable <laughs> it is isn't it I think he was a doctor um before wow. he started writing and um yeah this he started screenwriting and and this was it and I, I just think the script of Shallow Grave is incredible um the characters in this film I think they're especially Ewan McGregor's character Alex he's so unbearable and like to the point where especially within the first minutes of it that I feel like I can't watch the film but I've just got to kind of progress past that and that's another I think you know this was Ewan McGregor's first kind of big hit he'd been in um Dennis Potter's miniseries Lipstick on Your Collar which if people haven't watched that watch it it is bloody incredible but this was his first sort of big international role um this first but- movie yeah, yeah. So, and I think, God, when was Lipstick on Your Collar? Only a couple of years before It was a this. year earlier. It was 93. Yep. Um, yeah, Ewan McGregor's performance uh, to go with Hodge's script, like I said, he's so just insufferable that you can almost, I, I don't want to watch the film because of him, but the way that the script You're turns, really selling it, Sal. I know, <laughs> I know. And it's, oh, I love this movie so much. Um, the way the script turns sort of his character around, I think is really incredible. But um, yeah, there's so much to like about this film. I just think it's a really tight, neat little film. And I love the apartment where it is. I used to watch this when I was younger and just be like, that's how I want my house to look. And then I found out today that it's a set and they spent three quarters of the film's budget making it. Good Lord. The yeah, house, I know. The house is like a character in itself. It, well, it is, you know. It, it, this could almost be a play because it's set mm. so firmly in the apartment. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they spent three quarters of the budget making this apartment that they filmed it in. But, yeah, I love Shallow Grave. Great one. <laughs> I love that um, the films that you've picked for tonight, I feel like they all have a bit of a similar thread in the being just slightly off centre and I think that's what I really enjoyed about this. I actually watched it so late last night. It was honestly like the 11th hour. I think it was about like (laughs) 1, 1 a.m. that I watched this and I was like, oh, I just hadn't given myself enough time and it was, it kept my attention. I was wide awake at the end of it. It is such a riveting ride. Um, Definitely got some pretty uh, bad flashbacks to uh, share housing. (laughs) Um, yeah, it might be an interesting one to watch with, like, if you've got some annoying flatmates. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Again, the friendship in this, uh, the weird little complicated triangle friendship, it's pretty believable. It's They're so ridiculous. instantly you see that these three people are so dependent on each other, like yeah. straight away. They're so different, but these they're so completely dependent on all of them being there. Totally. And it's got an interesting mix. It's kind of quite toxic in some ways. Mm, oh, very. very much so. and then, yeah. But then in other ways, there's this wonderful, like, youthful um, rebellion to them. I like, I love the when they're out dancing together and like, there's lots of madness to, and believability in that. I don't know. I found it really um, quite charming. Though. I, I honestly feel like Ewan McGregor is wonderful in this. Like, he's it's, definitely unlikable, but yep. his performance is great. He's, I love watching um, actors, like well known actors, when they like really early roles of them because you get to see 
their their magnetism on screen and he's really like kinetic actor mm. I feel like he's um he always charms me I think he's just kind of one of those actors who just always delivers so he kind yeah. of gets put to the side but yeah awesome awesome performance and yeah um just like the I love all the like trashy um kind of British um I don't know what you, what you can, like just kind of really quite unlikable characters in this really <laughs> bleak situation <laughs> And they're just kind of, it's just, it's got that British bleakness to it. And I mean, like, this is a film that really, like, revitalised British cinema and I can totally see why. It's so captivating. And that soundtrack is just so perfectly 90s. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Wonderful. (laughs) I I love that you've given us a transatlantic triple feature because you've got one film that could not be more American and this film which couldn't be more UK, Scottish, and then you've got the film that's in between. (laughs) The the one that kind of merges them all together. Yes. Um, It wasn't intentional. (laughs) Beautifully done. Um, Yeah, this is very fun. This is so much fun. It's... It feels very much like a young a young person's movie, like yeah. like a young director. It's funny, mm-hmm. Boyle was 36 or 37 when he made it, though. Like, really? it seems like someone much younger. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't realise that um, he came into his career sort of at, around that age. Wow, okay. Because well, he'd, be, he'd been directing television for okay. the previous yeah. sort of seven or eight years. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's he said, like, Hodge found Andrew McDonald, the producer, and they were shopping the script around and spoke to, like, 20 directors and Boyle was the only one who mm-hmm. who, who accepted. Um, but it's funny, uh, back at the time when this came out, they, those four became a team, like Boyle, McDonald, Hodge and McGregor. Yes. And over this and then train spotting, and then A Lifeless Ordinary mm-hmm. to the point when M- McGregor wasn't, cast in the lead role of the beach i remember mm. that falling very, out. It was huge. very clearly mm. because i i was also um when train spotting came out a, a really you know big train spotting fan and i was very invested in in their work and i remember the controversy about you yeah. and mcgregor not being in the beach it was, he it was huge. angry he yeah. would have been he would have been too old for it though, wouldn't he? Yeah. I think that was like, part of it. Yeah. I think that was part of why he wasn't cast. But it was this I thing because it was Leo's... like they were like a fab four, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it sort of came off after that, which is a shame because <laughs> I, I loved their trajectory. And I have mm. big love for a lifeless ordinary as well. Um, but yeah, this is um yeah, this is fun. The characters are completely amoral, but it's part of the point. <laughs> it's um it's sort of like it's like treasure in the treasure of the Sierra Madre set in a in a brochure house. Yeah, but it's also kind of what really occurred to me last night. It's almost like post punk Hitchcock. Mm. It's got you know you've got the spiral staircase shots and the turning. True. There's a lot of Hitchcock here. Blood Simple, the Cohen's Blood Simple is another influence. I, yeah, it's, I think that was a really big one. And I also was reading somewhere that they described the three characters in um, Shallow Grave as. Thatcher's children, like their value, <laughs> everything, their their products of Margaret Thatcher. Wow, that's like that's pretty interesting. That's a wonderful reading yeah, of it that's as a well. Great read. Yeah, um, yeah. You and McGregor is just pure cocksure swagger until you know he starts getting cowardly towards the end. Um, getting drilled in the forehead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Christopher Eccleston is this contained <laughs> anxiety slash rage is so good. I Kerry also- Fox. Is this beautifully calculating still point in in between? Who is just reading? Seems like she's three steps ahead of them at every time. Um, I 
<laughs> even the thugs watching them going around, I'm like, that guy looks like off-brand Peter Mullen. And then I looked in the credits and it actually is Peter Mullen, just <laughs> a lot younger. Um, yeah, it's it's got a lot of energy. It's got a lot of um, got a lot of dark humor, a lot of twists. I I'm not sure if the like the closing twist like it works thematically. I but going back through my head, I'm like, when would that have occurred? Like I I had my doubts, but but this is <laughs> such an enjoyable film and such a '90s contact high as well. Like mm. watching this film, you just yeah, it transports you um, back to the glorious 90s uh with its uh, soundtrack and and visual style and kind of yeah sort of post-punk attitude yeah one another little quick interesting fact that i read about shallow grave was that christopher eccleston's um glasses were made as replicas of david cronenberg's oh i heard about wow. that yeah <laughs> see they all got these little <laughs> like weird. They've got these little film nerd nuggets in it. Yeah, because, you know, we've got scenes from The Wicker Man and stuff in this yes. as well. And, um, yeah, I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. The other thing that connects tonight's films as well as all being off-centre, they're all exercises in film nerdery, essentially. Yeah. They're all yeah. made by very film literate filmmakers wearing their uh, influences on their sleeve, mm. um, which, you know, we all hate as, you know, film <laughs> nerds here. Um, glorious. Wonderful stuff. So Shallow Grave is now available to rent or buy on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We bid a fond uh, farewell, adieu, a vidas and good night to, uh, <laughs> to Sally Christie, who is leaving us for a, a little while, but she will return as a guest in the uh, far-flung future. Um and uh, in our special send off special to uh, send off special to Chris uh, Sally, she um, uh, programmed a Sally Christie Film Festival for us. Uh, we discussed Blowout now streaming on Stan and available to rent on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. As is American and American Wealth in London, and Shallow Grave now available to rent on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Next week, we will dig into a trio of new releases. We'll struggle to make sense of reality with Anthony Hopkins in uh, with Anthony Hopkins in Florian Zellner's The Father. We'll discover we're secretly badasses as Bob Odenkirk gets his John Wick on in Ilya Neyshuller's action comedy Nobody. And we'll unravel the fascinating tale of The Painter and the Thief in Benjamin Rees' documentary of the same name. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, Killer Carl Chapman for paneling the show and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 